Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infield recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark and Consenya explore how a periodic table of enterprise design elements can help enable cross-functional understanding of the resources required to drive innovation projects. Ksenia, it is so nice to be with you. And we're going to have a, a conversation here about how you see the managing up, managing across and managing down of design projects. But you wear, you wear quite a few hats. I know that you're probably the world's best Cyrillic extension typographer for people who have typefaces. That's my opinion. I know that's one of your, one of your gigs. Um, are you still on the AIGA board? Are you still involved there? Um, I don't know if I'm comfortable with world's best for anyone for anything, um, but that well, is I mean, something. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is it's New York. Suck it up, princess. <laughs> you've been called world's best. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so I'm going to say that you're world's best. I know that you're not comfortable with that because you know probably I don't know Eric Spearsman is going to come out and actually say, well, I think I donated them, but I don't care. Just starting fights all and, over the and place. And if we're starting fights, I didn't want to hear Eric come and actually come at us and we'll interview him. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll go get a whole, what, what will it be, like a Katy Perry, um, uh, who's Katy Perry having an argument with? Shows I'm really up with popular culture. Taylor Swift, that's it. That's Katy Perry and Taylor Swift. So you and Eric can be like that. Like that. <laughs> well, as long as I get to be the Katy Perry side. Oh, okay. Um, when I see Eric, I'll say... I'm sorry, we've just turned you into Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> no context, nothing, just like, yeah. poof, some fairy dust. Yeah, you okay. are now Taylor Swift. So let's go on. So, and, and what's interesting there is that you're a hugely successful and respected designer, but here we are in New York where it's a rough town. This is almost like, you know, I, th- I think to The Sopranos where you've got somebody who's actually pretty high up in The Sopranos, but they can't say, there's Tony's the boss and everyone else has to say, no, I'm not the boss, that's Tony. So so there's a deference that people have in this town that where they actually, they've got swagger, but they don't necessarily claim for how globally successful they are. I think you're one of those characters. I think I have to untangle uh, that entire sentence right now in order to be able to respond to it. All right, let's um, go drop this whole little bit here about Tony Soprano and all that. So, but you've got, you wear several hats. So you've got your own own branding and typography business. Yes. Some Asky and Partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. You do uh, some education work in Barcelona, I believe. Yeah, I've been traveling, traveling, teaching lately. Uh, it's a new thing that's come up, and it's been an interesting thing to try to untangle and explore and figure out how to actually educate designers for the future. 
And you'd also been one of those fantastic volunteers who'd given your time to the AIGA New York, or was it the um, uh, the national chapter that you were involved? I was a, on the New York board for a couple of years. Okay, so you, so you, what's interesting here is that I'm trying to go drill into where, so the listeners can understand, where do you fit in the absurdity of reporting to boards? design operations, strategy, and so you actually cover a lot of these because sometimes we think of boards as being Fortune 500. But boards are also small businesses, the owners, and they need metrics, they need confidence, they need things to be reported to them the same way as a Fortune 500 company does. So when I talk about design in the boardroom, it's actually how do you go give the people who are commissioning projects and trying to create outcomes for the equity that's in the business... That's what I'm talking about. So you've got, whether it's been the non-for-profit at the AIGA, you've had experience there. You've got the educational institution that you're involved in. They obviously are saying, we need you to do something. You need to manage up to say the students got what they're, what they're about. And what's really interesting in education, there's normally, there's a measurement system that actually just handles all of that for you. How many attended? How many passed? Did we overspend a budget? It's like, it's, it's quite prescriptive. But that's not the same as when you go think about the briefs that you were doing in your own business. You've had to come up with those value charts and the and translating through why this project was going to be delivering value to a client. And that that breadth of experience there is really interesting to me and I think it is to listeners because what we need to do is get language around the different context of what it means of design in the boardroom what does it mean when you're reporting? So we've had um, interviews with people like New Balance, with Nike, um, Adidas will be coming, because in Australia we say Adidas. Okay, so Adidas, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I'm being an Arnold Schwarzenegger character there. Uh-huh. So um, I'll get to them when I get to Berlin. But those sporting shoe companies, which are no longer sporting shoe companies, they're much bigger than that, none of them have to go and actually convince that design delivers value. Yeah. It's known that it delivers value so that they're not wasting their time on advocacy. They're not actually lobbying. What they're doing is that they're turning around and actually saying, this is what we're doing because the project is sponsored. And there's really high literacy in the boards of those organisations to say, why aren't you using design as the most proven, reliable, effective method to do this project? We just want to give the customers what they want or we want to give them what they don't know that they want but is the next proposition for them. Yes. And can you get on and do that? Which is so different than you and I have both had relatively small-scale studios compared to, you know, the, the big behemoths. The customers that you get there, they actually probably don't know that they need design. What they're after is they might want something that's about style or they might want something which is about flair or pizzazz and then you have to nurture them and say, well, I've heard what you've asked me for. first peak and I was like, wait, do I want to keep growing this or do I want to actually maybe go the other way and shrink it and end up more selective? And I decided to shrink because I am able to choose my clients. And, the ones and there's there's certain clients that come to me, um, and that's also and part of like everybody's. Been that is also here. the design firm's so responsibility in building their brand, the and how they communicate in order to attract the people that they want and the people that 
are on the same level and understand what they're able to offer. But being that language, um, small specialist who's nimble, that means there's opportunities for people who have behemoth brands mm-hmm. to also say, can you come and help us with a special project? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, throughout this series I've been talking about um, tennis for some reason. (laughs) Tennis is fascinating. Tennis is an interesting framework and everyone understands that word. Yes. And the other one's music because people understand that. So you're a little bit like then a Brian Eno or a a Laurie Anderson when it comes in. It's like this very specialised, I do what I do. People who want to do something with me know what the offering is but you're not trying to be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. So that means when somebody is talking to you, they've either been heavily referred where somebody said, the person you need to speak to is, so there's confidence there in your expertise. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they actually understand the pursuit they're getting into. Yeah, not necessarily. And listeners, Ksenia is both gorgeous and wonderful as a human being but also really scary as a human being she's both of these these personas and i'd imagine when you're when you're so there's attitude which is really fantastic but there's also this nurturing side so i'd imagine when you're with your clients you're then going to be saying well how do i help nurture them so that the potential of the journey we're going to take them on Mm -hmm. is fantastic so that's the managing up to me yes so what are your tools to go do that? Or is it just experience and gut feeling and it's not something that's codified? It's actually just the visceral side of sensing the person and understanding where their gaps are and helping them to feel comfortable. Um, well, I think even the experience and the visceral process or the way that you described it can be codified, um, can be taught and should be learned. Um, I'm actually... So one of the things, so when I started teaching at Harbor Space University, I initially came in to teach typography and type design. And what I saw was a lot of students that were very confused about the process of what it actually means to work in design and work in this space. Um, And a lot of people with really outdated ideas on how to navigate and surf and manage a career. Um, So I actually pitched to them doing a class on manufacturing luck, which I've been putting together. So I've been kind of in the process of how do I codify all of the stuff that you end up doing? Because I think as most people that run design businesses know, the further you go into it, the less actual design you do. And most of your time is spent on absolutely everything else and also most of your time is spent on people which is really lovely and a really great part of the business. Ksenia it's it's fascinating when we go and actually think of how design works and think of other industries yeah so you've got things like pure maths pure science applied maths applied science but we've only got one flavor of design and when I began driven by design I was always about celebrating applied design, which means I've bumped into a lot of pure designers and ruffled a few feathers. Now, you shared with me that you came from a household where there was a pure mathematician. Yeah, no, I love this. Uh, I love this metaphor. Um, 
because yeah, my mom's a mathematician. And in fact, there definitely is this parallel between design thinking and math thinking. And this came up in a panel I was in two days ago, where a lot of the way that I problem solve, I completely um, credit to growing up uh, thinking in a mathematical terms. So did your mother stay as a pure mathematician through her life? Uh, yeah. She did? Yeah, pure. And then switched to applied uh, uh-huh. later so on she, work. <laughs> got to yeah. applied somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So because it, it's applied is actually where industry is. Mm-hmm. We need people to do pure science and pure maths because that's where theories come up. Well, that's what pushes and drives and pulls. But then we need people to go and actually do applied maths and applied science because that's how we actually leverage it in our economy. And I think... Well, we, and we ideally don't... you combine both because you're learning from the resistance. Ah, uh, so, so, so that's where I probably... That's where the reference goes to Columbia into their pure maths department where they've been observing what industry has been doing. But generally there's a, like a one-way valve. We'll suck in your information, but we're going to keep the pure theory here. Yeah. And at some point in, in history... A modification to the theory comes around or a new theory comes around but mm-hmm. it's very infrequent whereas every minute of every day that that theory is being applied and the puritans hate the applied because it looks like it's been bastardized yes because the only thing the pure people have is to protect that theory, whereas the applied people say, look, it's really nice you've got that theory, but we need to go and actually make it work in industry. And so we've modified it. We didn't take all circumstances. We've we've cherry-picked the parts that, have le- that give us leverage and we've left the rest of it behind. And the Puritan loses it because it's, but you didn't use all of it and that's not the way it was meant to work. We don't have a conversation around where pure design is and where applied design is. Mm-hmm. Well, there's I a yeah. The, I don't know where the boundary is, but I know where the line between pure maths and applied maths and science is. I don't know where the boundary is either. I think design thinking starts getting at it a little bit, and I think that's some of the tensions that you've seen or you felt. Um, yeah, and I know that there's there's a bit of pushback about uh, about whether design thinking is breaking design. Or whether it's actually liberating it, mm-hmm. I'd probably go down the libertarian side because I love popular music. Mm-hmm. But popular music that's based on really good classical theory mm-hmm. is resilient and engaging. And then there's disposable popular music. I like the stuff that's actually got a bit of structure to it, but it's also got the modern slant. I like classical music, but I really like popular music. And I suppose with design there, I probably want something that's actually going to actually give that contemporary applied side, which is probably where the design thinking is going to actually open up some new opportunities. But if you're a classist, a classical you know, designer, you're probably going to think it's been done inappropriately, not been done properly, bastardised. And you'll stand up at conferences and say, but it wasn't played, you know, the that song wasn't played the way a classical penis would play it. And you say, yeah, but it's a really good riff. 
and that that to me is the what I'm seeing the tension that's going on between some designers coming out and talking about design thinking being the end of the design industry, and there's other people who say this could be the beginning. Well, everyone has a different role to play, and they're like they're all important. Like everyone's talking to a different audience, and I think that's great. So throughout this series of interviews, mm-hmm. it's been obvious that the people that are successful don't have to play this one annoying note which is design 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 they actually work out how to apply design and design methodology so they're using it as frameworks and methodologies to Mm -hmm. create the outcomes rather than playing the twang of a guitar that says this is design this is design and I think that's one of the interesting things that I see the people who are yet to be successful in interacting and managing up mm-hmm. continually want to play that design string rather than actually going, no, actually just make sure it's got the flavours of it, the principles behind it. Because if you don't see it, it's probably right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's when you actually say... It, it's, a, it's a little bit like financial management when you say, oh, well, this is Gatra's financial principles. <laughs> I don't care. What I'm after is the outcome. Yeah. I don't really care that you're demonstrating that you know a particular economic theory. What I'm after is the outcomes for the organisation. Mm-hmm. I want it to be something I can understand, the levers of it that I can push but I don't need to know the theory. Yep. That's why you're in the room as the economist. So I don't have to be an economist. Yes, exactly. And and we were having a really interesting conversation with Debbie Millman. And we talked about the seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Now, I've known Debbie for a while and I've never seen her eyes roll back as far in her, <laughs> in her head when the seat at the table came up. Mm-hmm. Because what she was... What she was focusing on was, well, what will people do when they get the seat at the table? Are they just going to play that chord that says, or the string, design, Mm -hmm. design? Or will they be able to have a sophisticated conversation that says, you know, the language I use is, do you want to accelerate your economic outcomes? And people say, yes, good. Well, there's a tick, that's design. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go use the most proven, reliable method to accelerate your economic outcomes? So tick, yes, I want that. Do you want to get it right with your customers first time or are you happy to have four attempts at getting (laughs) the product right, release the whole product and then find that you have to dump 100% of the cost because you weren't quite, quite set properly and have to do it again or would you like to get it right first time? And they say, I will get it right first time. So great, that's design. Exactly. But I haven't said to them, oh, design's here. And that seems to be one of the big problems from, from people who are coming through their career that they, they want to just talk about that. So it becomes a little bit impolite and it's a bit immature. Mm-hmm. And I think it's how do we give guidance that there's actually the, the abstraction mm-hmm. of design methodologies and, and design principles into applied business management, into situational leverage. Yeah. rather than actually just having it demonstrative, the designs walked in the room. Well, I mean, there's a lot of conversations of, you know, trying to understand what design is and how do you, 
define it as it kind of sprawls and takes over and things. Um, and to me, like in the last time that I tried to kind of define it, like it was just design is about intention. Design is kind of like it's the intention and planning of something. And it's that ability of seeing the roadmap and seeing several steps down the line and it's communicating. And when we were setting up the Driven by Design awards programs, I had to work out how do we get submissions that are going to embody mm -hmm. what design is Yes. from people who generally don't know how to explain it themselves. They know it's there, but they don't know how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so the five challenge questions that are in on all nominations mm -hmm. give a framework so that people are talking about design as in, what was the brief? Yes. What was the design challenge? Mm -hmm. What was the innovation? That's great. What's the outcome? How did you integrate sustainability in there? Or yeah. if it's a digital, how did you deal with privacy? And by giving that framework, we've been able to go have a very successful formula to go and get people to have a conversation around design which makes sense to the people who are looking at all the award nominations. And we're not, as an industry, we're not particularly good at giving those shortcuts amongst ourselves as professionals. Because we've got creative types who say they've got their own flair and their own way of doing it, it feels like there's actually a middle tier of probably more structured, rational people who need to be helping design studios to be a little bit more obvious and set up. Mm -hmm. Because when you just leave it to a bunch of creative heads, they're going to say, oh, well, we all kind of know what's going on. But that doesn't translate to people who don't come from that same contextual space. Some yeah. people have a more structured form of information architecture. They have a more structured way of, under, of getting understanding and meaning. They want comparison. They don't want everything to be unique. They actually say, well, can you give it to me in a way that I can actually compare two projects because I've got similar dimensions I'm trying to compare them on. And, and it's been really interesting because it doesn't – because of the, the award nomination process being structured like that, we're not just relying on how beautiful the, the imagery is. Mm -hmm. because we now can look at the different award entries and see the way that people are able to go describe them. And that's probably coming into that post-artifact side of design rather than how beautiful is the object. Mm -hmm. It's actually what weight, what import, import did this have? Yeah. They're the types of frameworks that if you're somebody like uh, PepsiCo, 80 brands, they have to have a reporting framework that actually compares everything from Pepsi-Cola through to Quaker Oats. Mm -hmm. And they have to be able to talk to the board about that in a structured way. And even amongst their different departments, they need to have a language which goes and gives them something that is comparative. Yes. That's what management is about. And that middle management layer seems to be, in the design industry, it's a particularly big problem because I'm not sure it was ever fully developed. Whereas if you go into banking and finance and also in healthcare, mm -hmm. it's actually been there and the problem is how do you transform it? Mm -hmm. I think the issue in the design industry is it's actually laying the foundation and the bedrock and the methodologies. It, we can't transform it because it didn't exist. Sounds like a huge opportunity. You're going to take it on for us? <laughs> 
Just me. Listeners, there was a there was a look of terror, fear, and opportunity <laughs> all in the same eyes. So I told you there's yeah. a nurturing side and this really scary side. So <laughs> so I think what's in what's important here in this conversation we're having is we're talking about that it's okay that the structures aren't in place. Mm-hmm. But it's understanding that we need to get some more benign aspects to the design industry so people can understand how do you talk about design, how do you actually value it because if you can't actually talk about it in a structured way then you can't give it to somebody therefore they can't value it. So that's that managing up. Mm -hmm. And then if it comes through in a consistent way and it's talked about in a consistent way, the board is going to be able to interpret it. Yeah. But it's when everything comes through slightly differently you're inefficient on their time and you're not really respectful of their time. What they're after is how can we go understand that the thing that we're commissioning is actually doing what we want it to do. And so there needs to be a common reporting framework. And that seems to me something that has come through in the last 20 interviews that I've done. Mm -hmm. Nobody has actually said, well, hang on, I'll go to my office and I'll get you the, the, the system that we use. Yeah. And I would have thought that somebody would have come up and said, oh, so that's a very good question you've asked there, Mark, and we're world leaders and this is our, our framework. <laughs> Hasn't happened. So I think that's, a, that's on this journey through this is that we know that if we don't build some structure there, yeah. then people are going to find, find it very difficult to manage up. Yet they all want to have a seat in the, at the board that seat might be an, a proxy who's there, but if you can't give that proxy in the board who's a design advocate, mm-hmm. you can't give them the tools which are in the shape and language that they can then present to say, well, here's our standard formatting and of a report and here's where we're up to now compared to where we're up to last time that we reported. So if we want to get further down the track, you're going to have to put some more money in, but you can see we're heading in the right direction. If you can't go give that advocate in the board, something that they can use in their language, it's not going to get very far, is it? Listeners, we've just had this little moment that's happened between <laughs> Ksenia and I, which is about kind of like, yeah, this is making a bit of sense. Uh-huh. So how do you think, if that's the case, how does that come about? Have you got any thoughts about, is that the type of thing that it's uh, we propose to somebody like the AIGA a sprint weekend where you say let's go get all the people who probably have this need and let's try to put one let's put something like that together like yes that is the role of design organizations or that should be the role of design organizations is advocating for the industry and providing the tools that the industry needs that you can't have a bunch of individual people necessarily do on their own so so then that's something that Let's be bold and we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll put that and have a few conversations and see if we can do that. But what's also interesting there is actually bringing in the, the multi-market flavour as well mm-hmm. because you don't want to have the imperial measurement system and the metric reporting system because these are global brands. It's the type of thing. How do you go get through the, the platform of the design weeks that are travelling around the world? There are lovely events. And there's often they're the same people that are at all of the different events. How do you use that international forum to actually be a process and capacity forum? There's probably an idea there. And 
I'm connected mm-hmm. to most of the people who run run those weeks. So th- what's nice in this conversation that you've helped to facilitate is that we can identify who's probably the right set of characters to bring it about. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a bold step just to go and do it one weekend. Yeah. So I'm thinking uh, we have a chat to the SVA, Masters of Branding mm-hmm. facility, Debbie, and say, Debbie, we want to use the room. We go get a bunch of coffee, <laughs> a couple of sandwiches, invite a bunch of people in and say there's blackboards there. Let's start to go work it out. That's what we've been missing. And then just having the courage to turn around and say, can we come up with something which is probably going to be inadequate, but at least it gives us a focal point to say, here's a framework of how you can report the value of design through your board. There's that. But it's also like, I mean, like any conversation talking to the board about design, that's a two-way street. So it's like, it's not just designers contorting themselves into management language or management diagrams. It's also the people on the board having a greater understanding of design, whether that's through everyone having some education on design, which I think would actually help them do their jobs. Um, And that kind of thinking would help in a lot of other industries. It's through the popular conversation, including that. Um, So it's changing things in a lot of different areas simultaneously and not just how do we put design into a graph. In some of the other interviews that I've done, we've talked about what was the single initiative that saved more lives in public health than anything else? Mm-hmm. And it's sanitation. It's washing your hands. Yeah. And I wonder if if the thing that helps people to understand the design context is the idea of stop doing things at people and start doing it for them, mm-hmm. is that the washing hands moment, which is if your context is we're launching a new product and how is this serving and how is it, how is it helping the person, how is it working for them, mm-hmm. rather than it's helping us as a company and let's convince them that they need to go buy the product. No, design is a completely collaborative mission and like to me the research, the understanding the problem, the reframing problem is the part that actually takes the longest on any project. It's listening to the client and it's working together to really articulate the problem. Well, like to me, that is the design. And then once I've set that up, knowing what to do is actually fairly, with practice, fairly simple. So the reason I'm focusing Mm -hmm. on this washing hands moment is I think if we, rather than sending people off to do design thinking courses and get them IDEO savvy on, you know, all the methodologies of design thinking, we just gave them that one principle and say, here's the economic leverage that you get when you do things for people mm-hmm. because now the cost to serve people is less than the cost to convince them. So maybe we need um, bad design awards. Because oh. the way you normally see, like with design, most good design is invincible, right? Like, I don't notice this the design of this coffee cup because I am able to drink coffee cup out of it without it burning me and I don't understand the issue with 
what's good or bad with that font because I can read the sign right now. And with design, you normally notice it when something goes wrong. So, so you've, you've, you've gone into a, an area that is very, very dear to my heart. <laughs> so with the mechanic behind the Driven by Design Awards, and I think, mm-hmm. I think this is, should be the mechanic for all awards. Mm-hmm. So I'm about to go kill my business here by sharing this. So what we do is that we celebrate the courage of somebody to say, I need something different. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know how to do that. Yeah. Because there's a vulnerability there. And if we go and tell them that people are fat and ugly, it's not going to help with courage. Mm-hmm. You actually wind up being a bullying organisation. Mm-hmm. If we turn around and we say, look over there, there's somebody who was courageous and decided to go and actually do things for their customers, not do it at them, and they invested on this journey and here's, here's their current solution. Mm-hmm. There's project pride. Yeah. There's initiative pride. There's recognition that we did something that was respected. It, we're not saying it's the best design that was ever created. Mm-hmm. And we're not saying it's the worst design. Yeah. But we're acknowledging the courage to try to make a better future. And I, and I suppose I'd probably go down there on the positive parenting side of mm-hmm. actually Absolutely. if I reward good behaviour, whereas I know as a child when I was admonished or punished for bad behaviour, it just made me more dogged to see who broke <laughs> first, them in disciplining me uh-huh. or me in for the, uh, because of the amount of punishment that I was receiving. So, so stubbornness is – we know there's a feedback loop which is bad there. Are, so yeah. if you head down the how do we actually celebrate yeah. and in our case it's celebrating courage, it's celebrating uh, excellence and celebrating diversity because sometimes to go do something which is taking you know, the customer and their experience to – to the future or to the Mm -hmm. next stage is an extremely challenging thing to do for really rusted on brand experiences. So I'm probably more focused on I'm going to say that we should be actually lifting them up because every time I've seen people who go do the critic side, the critic is actually there's a really big problem with the critic and and there's a quote from Franklin Roosevelt, which is about critics and mm-hmm. courage. And we'll put a link to that quote there because there's this moment where you say, well, what did a critic ever ever achieve? And all the critic has achieved is to go cut somebody down. Whereas if you go in courage or you have courage yourself, you've given something a shot. You've, you've made a proposition that you can do something which is a betterment which is an improvement. And I think one of the things that we want in our world now is who's actually going to help take us into the future in a positive way because there's so much toxicity of people actually being critics about things at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll get off my soapbox now. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think no, it's important, important work. Yeah. Ksenia, it's been lovely having a conversation with you. <laughs> And that's what these are, you know, the interviews, conversations. It's actually a mm-hmm. chance to go and collectively expand knowledge. Mm-hmm. No doubt it'll be the first of several conversations that we have. 
And then we're probably also going to go see you for a design sprint at the SVA. Thanks, Debbie, Let's for the do space. It. Yes. But uh, at the SVA, where we'll turn around and say, can we actually put some reporting frameworks in place? As flawed as they're going to be. And what and we might have, do. Yeah, something to start building on. Yeah, is then say, well, here's a proposition. And the great thing is when you put a proposition out, some people will criticize it and other people will say, let me help you extend it. Mm-hmm. But we don't get there if we don't take the first step. Yeah, start an open source uh, reporting platform. Thank you for helping me to do <laughs> to get more of a work burden. I really appreciate it. No, I do mean it. I, I really, it, It's exciting. Thank you very much for your time, Ksenia. Thank you.